He's a creator, an innovator. His passion is why we listen. His knowledge is why we want to be educated. He really has spent his life focusing on people that make excuses. With a man who has turned around over 800 bars throughout the world, Bar Rescue's John Taffer. If you do tomorrow what you did today, you will get tomorrow what you got today. Well, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, everybody. It's a pretty exciting week. It's New Year's week. I'm John Taffer. This is our No Excuses podcast, and I'm talking to you from the desert, man. I'm out in the Palm Springs area with Nicole, my two dogs. We're hanging out. And it's the first time I've ever done the intro of a podcast on my phone. That's how much of a vacation mode I'm in right now. So online, I posted some uh, uh, requests of fans because I found, uh, not found, I adopted a new dog, a little white schnauzer. He's about five years old. And I think we got, what, three, 4,000 suggestions of names for him. I wanted to announce that. His, the little name that we chose for our little buddy is Nero. And Nero has now officially joined the Taffer family. So I'm down here with Nero, Moxie, our other dog, Nicole, and I. And we're hanging out in the desert and taking some time off. And we're going to break into New Year down here. You know, and and uh, as we end the new year, and I think about all the things that, that, that have happened to me this year and how thankful I am for all the things, you know, the Mixology line and Walmart, our Seltzer line, Taffer's Tavern. You know, another really successful season of Bar Rescue. I'm so appreciative to everyone who's done these things. And I've worked so hard. And to think that, that all these teams of people around me have put these projects and supported me in putting these projects together. And I'm so thankful and I'm so excited about the new year. Are you? And you think about the, uh, all the problems and disappointments that we had in the last year. We're better equipped to deal with in the new year. All the opportunities, all the seeds we planted last year grow next year. So this is a really exciting time, and I've loved doing this podcast the past year. So one of my goals to end this year was to share with you some of my favorite moments. So this is a best of podcast, and I've given it a bit of an inspirational focus, as this podcast has had all year. Uh, These are some of my best guests, some of my favorite moments. I want you to... Hopefully be inspired by these moments like I was. Give a listen. And tonight, right now, as a matter of fact, as I'm speaking to you, my only daughter, my only child, and my only daughter, Samantha, is being induced to have my very first grandchild. Wow. Which is amazing. So I am leaving you, Corey, in literally five minutes. I'm running to the airplane. I'm getting on a plane, and I'm flying to be with my my little girl, my 30-year-old little girl. Have my first grandchild, and I got to tell you, buddy, it's pretty freaking cool. Oh, congratulations, John. Owen Smith. I'm going to make you tell the story again because I okay. love it so much. But I have an end to your end oh, to you the do? story. Yes, okay, okay. that I don't think you know. I don't know this. Okay, so <laughs> when Owen goes to Starbucks, yes. and that's where I end, and you yes. take over. Okay, well, Starbucks, they love, they can't give you your coffee unless you give them a name. And sometimes it'll just be me in there. I'm like, it's just me, man. Just, you know, my order. So what I like to do, because Owen is a Welsh name, it's a white name, I like to give them a really black name. It's enjoyment for me, and, uh, you know, so whenever they go name, I go Ludomartius. Ludomartius. Ludomartius, and I just look at them with a straight face like this. And they all have the same reaction. They go, oh, okay, um, how do you spell that? And then I go, here we go. L. So you're a bit indignant. Yeah, I'm extremely <laughs> indignant. <laughs> like, L, apostrophe, 
Demartius. <laughs> <laughs> so they're writing this on the cup, <laughs> as you're saying. They're writing it on the cup. And, uh, and uh, one time it backfires on me uh, because I paid with a credit card. And the Starbucks, they, the chip reader wasn't working. So she was about to swipe it, but she looked at the name and she goes, Little Demartius, is it? Yeah, yeah, that's me. What's up? She goes, Do you have an ID? <laughs> so that's when I realized the name of my card does not Was say it Demartius? No, it says Owen Smith. So I still tried to stay in it, stay indignant. And I go, Oh, here we go. You going, you for real? You going to ask a black man for his ID after everything Starbucks just went through? Didn't y'all just have diversity training? Like, what's up? And she goes, I'm black. Yes, I need to see something. <laughs> she got busted. Got busted. And so she said the best thing. She looks at my card, my, my, my ID and my credit card, and she just goes, if you're going to be an asshole, have cash. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Owen tells me this story. Yes. The camera's shut down. The set is over. We walk into the production office together. Okay. I sit down in my chair, and next to my coffee cup from Starbucks <laughs> is your cup from Starbucks. And son of a gun, I couldn't believe it. On the side of the cup, it said... La Demartius. La <laughs> So this wasn't a comedy routine. No. This was a real story. I do it. I really do it. <laughs> At that moment, I fell in love with you, man. <laughs> I thought that was the greatest. That You're telling me this stuff on camera. Yeah. And I walked in, and there it was right before my eyes. J.R. Martinez. Our mission was to escort a convoy north of the city of Karbala. And uh, so we, we proceed. We, we drive, and, you know, we, we start... We get to the Karbala safely, and we think mission complete, time to turn around and come back, wait for our next mission, which is going to be the next day, more than likely. And as we're starting to turn around, we were, were rerouted because we had to meet up with a group of guys just north of the city of Karbala to go secure this area, a new mission. And as we're rerouted, I'm the driver, there's a, there's a passenger, there's a gentleman sitting behind him, and there, in the Humvee, there's a weapon mounted up top, and there's a gunner. So there's four of us. And I start, I, I'm driving on this new route that we were told to go down, and then suddenly, boom, it happens. And what happened was the front left tire of the Humvee that I was driving ran over a roadside bomb. Immediately, the other three soldiers were thrown out of the vehicle, yet I was trapped inside. Wow. And it, within a matter of seconds, caught on fire. And here I am now. From my memory, because I was completely conscious the whole time that I was trapped inside of that Humvee, which they later told me was five minutes. Jeez. I'm seeing my hands literally burn. I'm watching the skin on my hands melt away. I am gasping for air, trying to get oxygen because I had broken ribs, lacerated liver. So in the midst of me trying to get oxygen, I was inhaling the smoke from the fire. Sure. Then at the same time, in my mind, mentally, I kept screaming and yelling. And mentally, I'm thinking to myself, I'm screaming and yelling at the top of my lungs. Why aren't these guys who are my brothers? Why aren't they coming to get me? Because to me, of course, five minutes or a minute feels like 10 minutes. It feels like an hour. Why why aren't they coming to pull me out of this Humvee? And I remember that in this vicious cycle of... (gasps) gasping for air and help, help, screaming and yelling. I remember that I would have these moments of where I would just, I would stop and I would close my eyes. And it felt so good to just let go. And I remember thinking to myself, I literally thought this. I can't close my eyes. Because if I do, that's it. I've given up. Because my body's going to shut down. 
So do you and think- I re- psychologically have to trick my myself into believing that no, somebody's coming, somebody's coming. Just open your eyes. And that was literally the battle for those five minutes. It was with myself mm-hmm. of keeping my eyes open, staying awake, staying alive, keep fighting. That's what the battle was with. That's who the battle was with. So do you think that a lot of people in that horrific moment let go? Absolutely. Yeah. That's probably I, one of the most defining moments of your life. That's a millisecond, wasn't it? Yes, sir. Yeah, absolutely. And it was easy. It was easy. And it felt good. It felt uh, it felt um, uh, relieving to just let go in that yeah, moment. Almost natural. It, it was absolutely. Yeah. Like, you know, oh, the alternative to to this pain and this excruciating pain that I'm feeling is to just let go and just kind of be at peace. Yeah. Well, hell, I'll choose that any day. Right. But the long-term effect of that is that I'm not here. I don't have the life that I have today. I don't have the opportunity to do the things right. that I've done. So, but why, why did, in that moment, I wasn't thinking this, I wasn't thinking, okay, you know, it, so why JR, is it ingrained in me? So what? JR, if, because you had such great leadership, and that you had such purpose and such a sense of value yeah. to your mission. In a way, didn't that leadership add to your sense of value, which added to your motivation to say, I have a purpose to live? 100%. Isn't that interesting? How, it is how- absolutely. I mean, 100%. And I think that's, you know, when you talk about leadership, you know, you know, a lot of people have a, a, a misconception of what leadership really looks like. And, 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 and it's literally just taking every single one of your troops, no matter who they are, no matter where, they, where they're ranked, and say, hey, this is your job, this is your job, and this is your job. And if the three of us or the four of us or 500 of us do every single one of our jobs, guess what? You now get that individual to get a, a, an understanding that they bring value, that there's, yep. they're an asset to this company, to this mission, to this movement, and then they do more for you. Right. Like they they buy in. They, they'll they work the long hours. They might not complain as much. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it, it's and, and so I had I had tremendous leadership that allowed me to 100 percent buy in. So it's so now you're in the vehicle. You're, you're going through unthinkable, horrific moments. Was there a moment where you felt somebody grab you or was there a moment where, where you talk to us about that? Yeah. So here I am replaying this, you know, this 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 thought process of what's going to happen to me, what's happening, what's happening to me. And then suddenly that image of my sister appears. And then as I stated, it felt like it wasn't even a, a second after where two, where I, I, well, I don't, I don't remember how many hands. I just remember feeling a set of hands, a, a pair of hands grabbing me and pulling me. And I don't remember anything beyond that. I mean, what I, what I do as far as who pulled me out, I didn't, I, I wasn't able to process that until later they filled that, those blanks in for me. But what immediately after when I was pulled out, because I later learned the two guys, because the Humvee was on fire, they just grabbed me and pulled me out. There, there wasn't a let's kind of fiddle around in here, make sure right. we know, just grab and get them out. Just let them land, land, like pull them onto the, onto the sand and then we'll get to them here. And, yeah. and, and so um, I remember laying on the sand like, on my back and I was I, I felt this excruciating pain coming over my face and. I started screaming about my face, my face, my face. And of course, as you can see, mm-hmm. you know, my face was, burned. was, was burned, you know, pretty badly. And, and, and I felt the pain. And, uh, and then from there I was medevaced 
and I was taken to a local medic station set up in Iraq where at that moment they put me into a medical induced coma. Donnie Wahlberg and Jenny McCarthy. So I want to talk about Hold the Light for a second because I read that when I was reading about the two of you guys being as prepared as I am, Donnie. And so if, if Donnie is down in a shutdown mode or frustrated or otherwise just in, in a bad place at the moment, then you sort of hand the light to Jenny. And this is a conscious thing that the two of you do, not that there's a physical light. But now, Jenny, you know that you have to be the, the bearer of the positive energy and the force to pull Donnie out of that bad spot. Fair? Is that? A hundred percent. And again, it would be vice versa. But yes, it's basically one person in the relationship needs to stay awake. Yes. Because it's so easy to defend something that your partner says to you that isn't true, you know, or something mean. And instead, you you have to stop, take a moment, some space and say, OK, my partner is hurting right now. I'm going to hold light, which means I'm not going to react. I'm just going to love. And when you do that, your partner is able to see that's the only way your partner is able to see is by when your partner holds the light. And Donnie's done it so many times for me that it's unbelievable. It's almost like a little miracle that happens. It's a deep concept. In the relationship. Very deep concept. And it works every time. It's deep. It's deep in the thought of a relationship, John, that honestly, if we think of it in this context, it's really simple. Our ego is really that little child. And when we're in that shutdown mode and we're thinking the worst of our partner and da, 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 we're, we're, we're empowering the eight year old child within us, right. To throw a tantrum. Yep. And what do you do when your eight year old throws a tantrum on the floor? You just watch them. You, I mean, you're going to, you get, otherwise you're going to beat them. You're mm-hmm. not going to beat your eight year old child. Right. So you just, you, when you, our egos are negative attention seeking and it's basically I'm becoming an eight-year-old child, and Jenny's watching me do it. Rather than judge me and leave me, she's saying, you know what? I'm going to be a loving partner here, and I'm not going to indulge the eight-year-old. When, and hopefully the eight-year-old will see their behavior, stop, and come in the room and want to have a healthy conversation. And that's sort of what happens. Hmm. And in truth, it's really not me handing her the light. Um, a, a lot of times in relationships, the other partner just has to be awake enough to know to take the to light. To take the light, Meaning, sure. Yeah, because when you're shut down, you're not going to give it up no, per se. You're shut down. You're not giving up anything. <laughs> right. You don't even want. You don't even want to admit to your partner that you need her to hold the light. We're so so <laughs> and insecure, or that you need light at all. <laughs> exactly. I don't need any exactly. freaking light. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and when and, and to we, be fair, you know, when we're both when we both of us are not conscious or awake, and neither of us can hold the light. What winds up happening is a, you know, a, a fight. And yeah. so yeah. in doing the work and being both conscious and wanting to have spiritually grow together, we've gotten really good at it. And it so, still takes work, but we've gotten to be way more conscious and present during those situations. So, right. And awake meaning, awake meaning for anyone of the listeners out there, like who may not understand what that means. It's not like some cryptic talk. Awake meaning when you're in that, funk in in your life when you're activated and you 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 know you're mad your partner says a word or a phrase and you're like oh you feel that knife in your stomach and you don't you don't you can't form the word you're so angry but you don't even know what to say um and and you're worried you're going to say something aggressive so you just start to shut down um 
which is eventually going to lead to an explosion. Um, that's being asleep. You've yeah. fallen asleep. You've now left the present moment in your the the post traumatic stress, the 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 abandonment in your life, all your past stuff from your childhood is now taken over, and your inner child, your in your ego, are now running your brain with a million thoughts of what is wrong with the person in the other room. And none of them might be and relevant. You, you, none of them. Uh, <laughs> 99.9% none of it's yep. true. Ryan Reeves. I'm really proud to have this guest here this week. Now, I confess, and those of you who listen to me know that I'm a hockey fan, and those of you who listen to me know that I'm a bit of a nutcase about the Las Vegas Golden Knights and the first season to the Stanley Cup and all the historic records that we've created. Uh, uh, and there are a bunch, by the way, for those of you who, who are shaking your heads right now. But, you know... Every once in a while, you, you meet a player or somebody in any sport, no matter what it is, who just sort of stands out in a crowd. There's something about him. Ryan Reeves is a winger for the Las Vegas Golden Knights, played for the Pittsburgh Penguins before he came here. When Ryan Reeves was young and playing hockey, a coach came up to him one day and said to him, Listen, Reeves, if you want to continue playing hockey and make it to the NHL, you've got to learn to fight. You're the kind of hockey player who's got to learn to fight. So Ryan goes and learns how to fight, literally how to fist fight and the right way to box and fight and comes back on the ice as an NHL player, and he's one tough son of a bitch, boy. Ryan Reeves is the muscle of the Las Vegas Golden Knights. He's the guy who hits harder than anyone else and takes a hit harder than anyone else. And it's fascinating when you consider the influence of, uh, of the power players, the fighters on a hockey team. Every team has to have one to win. They're tough they create penalties, they create moments from nothing, and they create a certain vengeance, if you will, on the ice, a competitive level that typically doesn't exist. Ryan Reeves is that guy here in Las Vegas. And uh, Ryan, buddy, you and I met a few weeks ago at a charity event, yeah. but there are a few things in my life the past few years that have touched me more than hockey, the Las Vegas Golden Knights, a goal that you scored, Ryan, Couple years ago, that got us. Uh, 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 I think in Winnipeg. Couple, in Winnipeg, yeah. that's right. That's what it, was, it was. It was the the goal that got us in. Yeah, the, against my hometown too. Yep. Yeah, they hate me. That's there. right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> so it's really a pleasure for me to have Ryan Reeves or Revo, as he's well known. And Ryan is a winger with the Golden Knights. And uh, honestly, buddy, when, when it comes to heart, you are one of the, my favorite hockey players that's playing in the game today. Thank you. Appreciate and, that. And you know, a lot of people dream about being athletes. You know, and, and and think that things are easy, and, and and or change direction in life. And you knew you wanted to be an athlete when you were even just the youngest. Young, young. Oh yeah, young, young. My and, uh, and your dad. Yeah, football player, CFL, a little bit in the NFL. Um, but yeah, just an athletic family. You know, we, me and my brother played every sport possible. And the good thing about my dad and my mom was they never pushed me to any sport. It was just whatever you enjoy doing, you enjoy doing well. Me and my brother kind of dominated every sport when we were younger, so we enjoyed doing it all. Um, and, and we were really good at football. My brother was really good at basketball. I was good at hockey. And, uh, yeah, I just progressed from there. So I was an okay athlete when I was a kid. So you were the kid who was good at everything. Yeah, yeah. I was, you know, I was actually a little bit hated. We, I, I was just talking to my buddy about this uh, a couple of weeks ago in gym class. So I, I, I feel like I developed a little quicker than everybody else. I towered over everybody when I was, yeah. you know, grade three, four, five, six. And so when, uh, sorry, at recess, we'd play football. So at first I wasn't allowed to play with them. I had to go do something else. And then I was like, all right, Revo, you can play, but you have to play quarterback and you're not allowed to run. 
And then it was, okay, you can be the receiver, but when you catch the ball, the play's dead. No more running. And then it was, <laughs> okay, you can, you can run, but you can only run on one foot. But it was like, well, just let me play. Come on. Wow. So uh, uh, were you better at that age because of a natural skill or you think it was desire? And I'll tell you why I ask. When I was young, I played baseball. And there were moments where I chose not to dive for that ball. <laughs> and I knew that there were friends on the team who in that moment would have chosen to dive for that ball. Yeah. You were the diver, weren't you? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. It was, uh, you know, gym class was my favorite time of, uh, favorite time of the day. Um, but, yeah, I was, a, I was a tryhard. I was one of those kids that had to be the best at every sport. Um, but I think my dad kind of put that in me. He yeah. was uh, – you know, if you watch me on the ice, I'm very physical. Yep. I don't go around people. I don't really have the hands to go around people. Yep. He was the same way. When he played football, he ran through people. And, um, you know, the, the one story that always sticks out, uh, kickoff return, I catch the ball. I run down the left side. I dance around one guy, and I run out of bounds because I run out of room. And my dick, can we swear on here? Yeah. yeah. Okay. My dad comes over to me and grabs my face mask. What the f*** are you doing? It's like, what? He's like, you go through him next time. And so next play... I, uh, or a couple minutes later, exact same thing. Catch the ball and kickoff return. I run left. Same kid right there, and I put my sh- my head right through his shoulder. Broke his collarbone. My dad comes wow. in the field. That's what I'm talking about, baby. Go but it was like him. it was those things that that made me the player that I am from when I was younger. So at a young age, you learned that the risk or the pain was worth it. Because of the reward. Absolutely. That's a powerful lesson as a young kid. Yeah. I, so, and I had a lot of those. You know, I, I remember I got hurt one time, and I, I laid down on the field, and uh, it was my shoulder. And my dad came up, and he's like, what's wrong? He's like, ah, oh, my shoulder. He's like, can you walk with your shoulder? Yeah? Well, get the fuck up then. Yeah, get he's back like, don't you game. ever lay on that field unless you can't walk. I was right. like, I'll pop back up, walked over there, and... Never laid down again. I don't know how you do it after some hits in hockey, buddy. How you just skate right Well, out I like dishing them out. I don't like taking them. That's why I, 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 I oh, dish yeah. them You know nobody can hit harder than you can. So it's an interesting point, though, when you think about, you know, Revo as a young kid who, who is taking risks physically, right, and taking risks emotionally. You play really good in a game. A couple of guys hate you because of it because you're too damn good, but you're okay with that. Oh, yeah. Right? Absolutely. You hurt your shoulder. You're okay with that. Absolutely. So at a young age, you became a risk taker. I don't know if you've ever quite looked at it that way. No, no, I, I don't think I did. I think that I just looked at it like um, I just always wanted to be an athlete. And to be an athlete, you have to work as hard as you can, no matter what yeah. people say, no matter if it pisses people off or not. You gotta, yeah. you gotta go out there and do what you gotta do. And were you uh, always this disciplined? No, no, unfortunately not. You know, I, I think I had a lot of natural ability when I was younger. And then people started catching up to me when I was in junior mm. and, and uh, getting, you know, around 21. Yeah. And then all of a sudden I was a little smaller than anybody else, everybody else. So then I started really getting in the gym and, you know, my natural ability couldn't carry me any further. Now it was time to put in that work. And when I realized that, then I started excelling. Wow. So that's fascinating. So natural talent took you to a certain level. Then skill started to take the people around you. Exactly. To surpass you, in exactly. essence. Yeah. And that was a kick in the ass for you, I guess. Yeah. Oh, a big wake-up call. Yeah. Because yep. these guys that I was, you know, that much better at, you know, all these sports are all of a sudden catching up, and now I'm not the best in the league anymore, and I'm not dominating everybody anymore. And, um, you know, we had, we had uh, one of those days where it was, what do you want to do when you're older? I said, well, I want to be a hockey or football player. Mm-hmm. And the teacher looked at me and said, well, no, I need a real job. I was like, no, no, that's, that's my real job. That's what I want to do. Um, 
But when I realized people started passing me, then it was, okay, well, if I want to do that, i got to get my shit together here. Right. So you suddenly pulled it together. And, and then, uh, you know, I love the story of when you chose to be a fighter. Yeah. I love this story. So you were a hockey player. Yeah. You were doing okay. But you had a style of hockey that had certain benefits and disadvantages based upon the way you played the game. Tell right. me this story because I love it. So, um, you know. Going back to when I played football, very physical, and I carried that onto the hockey into the hockey ring. Yep. Very physical guy. Everybody knew me because of that. Uh, when I'm playing junior, my very first year, you're seven. I was 17 playing against you know some 20 year olds, some 16 yeah. year olds, whatever it was. And uh, very early in that that first year, I got into a fight with a 20 year old, and I did okay. And the ref came over to break it up, ended up popping my shoulder out. And ever since then. I, I wouldn't say I didn't fight anymore, but I was a little more hesitant to. Uh, and then I got drafted into uh, by St. Louis. Mm-hmm. I was in the minor leagues for a little bit. And the year I was supposed to be kind of getting a shot to come up, uh, one of the coaches uh, that was in the minors, he knew he was going to be called up to the NHL. And he sat me down and was like, listen, if you want to make the NHL, you're going to have to start fighting. You're going to have to start sticking up for yourself and sticking up for teammates because that's the role you play. That's the type of player you have to be. You're a physical player. Right. You're not going to to be a skilled player. You don't have the skill for that. And I I took that to heart. I went home that summer. That was at the very beginning of the year. And I went home, and I think within a week I I was taking boxing lessons. Um, I was doing it three times a week. Sorry. Um, Came back the next year, and I fought everything that moved. Anything that was possible to fight i asked to fight and i got noticed because of it and then the next year i uh, started getting a little call-ups and I made it made my way into the nhl and made a name for myself t-pain who was your biggest mentor Ooh, my biggest mentor i think it was my dad my dad was my biggest mentor man he uh you know he, he always he, he put me through media training when i was like 12 like wow. so <laughs> you know what'd your dad uh, do What'd he your dad sure, do? Yeah, he made sure that I was always good. So, yeah, I think it was my dad. What did he do for a living, your dad? Uh, man, I mean, he was a, a motivational speaker. He, uh, you know, he had a couple of normal jobs. He owned his own restaurant, a seafood restaurant for a while. Uh, you know, my dad, was a, my dad was a real true businessman. So, you know, he went around uh, uh, talking to the youth for a long time. Wow. And he was just a staple in the, in the neighborhood, man. Just, if you got anything wrong, any problems you need to talk about, you come talk to my dad, and he'll so, figure it out for you. So you're a bit of a chip off the old block in a way, then, when you think about that. A so, little bit, a little bit, a little so, bit, man. So your I, dad, I your dad was very entrepreneurial. Your dad yeah, was very sure. community minded, obviously, right? Really loved to support Absolutely. the community, and your dad was a, uh, an inspirational figure. I could say, yeah. that, I could say yeah. exactly the same things about you. <laughs> I try, man. You know, I just try to spread, spread good, good feelings and, and cheer to everybody, man. Everybody deserves to be happy. So, you know, yeah. I try to, you know, put that out there in the world through, you know, whether it be just having a conversation with somebody or music or any way I can convey that feeling or any way I can put that out there and get those vibes to other people. That's got to get out there, man. You know, when I, when I look at you and, and all the positive messaging you send out, buddy, whether it's school or business or one only has to look at your social media feeds for a couple of hours to realize how positive you are. You know what I mean? Every message you send is so freaking positive. But, you know, when I look at some, and I don't want to badmouth anyone. That's not where we're going. But when I look, no, at, no, I when I look at some of your peers in, in the music space and I look at some of the negative messaging out there, does that bother you? 
Um, it's it's a form of I mean, you know what it is, man. People have people have succumbed to the to the like machine. And you know, I heard uh and I and it, it, I've been saying this for a while, but I just found a way to say it yesterday when I saw Gary V talking about it. And it's the like machine, man. People do things to generate more likes and people have been uh you know, they they, they they've been subjected to the situation to where when they do put out positive messages, they don't get as many likes as they do when they put out the negative stuff. So they tend to gear their social media more towards what they get likes off of. And people are putting so much value into, you know, these internet points and the hearts and, you know, the numbers that you come across and things like that. People are putting so much power into that. They're changing their whole lives to where people in people that have known these people for years are like, why are you doing this? You, you don't, you don't ever act like this. Why are you so crazy on social media? Why are you so mean on social media? And it, it really comes down to, man, I just get more likes than I am. So I just do that. Like I've, I've met some of the, you know, the, some of the worst people on social media. And then when you meet them in person, it's like, this dude is the nicest guy I've ever met in my life. And it's literally just the messaging they put out there so they can get more likes and they can get more fake internet points in the hearts. And it, it is, you know, so I can kind of see beyond it. I can kind of see, you know, because we know the, the, the background and we know the behind the scenes of, you know, I kind of give everybody the benefit of the doubt. Like I, this guy can't be this much of an asshole. Like, yeah. it's, it's just, I, I got to meet him first and then I'll be able to, you know, I'll be able to assess what's going on here. But I don't you know, think it's almost I, you know, I try not to hold anybody to their social media. basically. No, I hear you. And, and it's it's a, a terrible testament to society that we respond more to the negative than the positive, you know, that we're looking for Absolutely. that. It, we're almost looking to see humans in places where we don't want to be ourselves. And that sort of sucks. Well, well, we well, and and a lot of the time, uh, you know, people look at celebrities and public figures, and they, you know, they think we're perfect. I don't know how, because you know, a lot of us try not to portray that, and we try to tell them, like, look, guys, we all got problems. We all still take shit. Like, it's, everything's still with it. Everybody's got problems. You you watch TMZ, and you see all these people going through shit, and it's really like people want to know that we're not perfect, and it brings people joy to see, like, you know, it, it sucks to say, but it kind of brings me with joy to see, like, bad stuff happen to us. Oh. It's like, oh, you get in trouble, too. Oh, you're in jail, too. You can go to jail for the same thing I go to jail for. Okay, money's not going to fix everything. But, you know, and then when we say, when we, you know, when we get money and when we say, guys, money's not going to fix everything. I just found this out. I thought it was going to fix it, but then I got money. Uh, nope, I'm still I'm still in a bad place. The money doesn't fix depression. And then everybody's like, oh, you're just rich. Oh, why do rich people say this all the time? And it, 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 it kind of breaks my heart that people don't listen to these things. But, you know, sometimes you just got to find out for yourself. This is No Excuses. Well, yes, those were certainly uh, uh, powerful moments for me. You know, this year alone, we interviewed over 50 people in this podcast. And every time I learned something from someone and I've realized, you know, at the end of every year, we are supposed to look back and reflect on a year. And you know, as I've said before, next year is so dependent upon what we've done this year, you know, to, to progress our lives in the new year. And I always look back and think to myself, what am I most thankful for? What means more at the end of the year? And I can think of things like cars and, and possessions, or I can think about trips or business ventures and all the wonderful things. And people would say, I'm thankful for mixologists. Sure, and I'm thankful for this and I'm thankful for that. But at the end of the day, 
And I learned this lesson every year. At the end of the day, at the end of the year, it's Nicole, my wife, who's most important. My daughter, Sam, who's most important. Her new grandson, Rhett, <laughs> who's unbelievable. You know, it's the human aspects of our lives that matter most. It's the people around us that create the environments that cause our success. So when I look back at this year and think to myself, what am I most grateful for? Yeah, it's my wife, Nicole. And it's my daughter, Sam. And it's the rest of my family. It's my team, Sean, Corey, Max, Denise, Natalie. It's all the people that have helped me get here. It's you who take the time to listen and watch me. So the most thanks that I have come for the human aspects of our lives. And I think we should reflect upon that. Everything that we do is based upon us and the people around us. And I think when we take care of that, the rest of it seems to come together. I want to wish you all a very, very happy new year. And don't forget, subscribe right now. Do it right now. Any place where you subscribe to your podcasts.